Turn your Bibles to Psalm 118, please. We're coming to an end of a series that we began some time ago in the book of Psalms, and in particular we've been thinking about the Psalms that Jewish people traditionally use at Passover. And uh, technically they're called the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. Hallelujah means praise the Lord. That's what we've just been singing, praise the Lord. If we sang that in Hebrew, it would come out hallelujah. Um, But Psalm 113 to Psalm 118 are traditionally used by Jews in the Passover festival, in the Passover uh, celebration. And we believe these are the songs that Jesus would have sung. we don't know what the tunes sounded like. We've lost the tunes. We've just got the words. We've got the words in English, but uh, these were once meant to be sung by groups of God's people uh, as part of their ancient worship. Well, let's pray as we uh, continue. Uh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word today. We know that the, uh, the unfolding of your word brings light. So we pray that you would enlighten our minds and enliven our hearts and uh, stir us today as we consider your word to to love you and to uh, to commit recommit ourselves to serving you uh, we pray all these things in jesus name amen well psalm 118 let's read it together oh give thanks to the lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever let israel say his steadfast love endures forever let the house of aaron say his steadfast love endures forever Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvellous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he 
who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Now don't close it, don't put it away, keep it open. We're going to need to keep coming back to it. All God's people are called here to give thanks. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures for how long? Forever. Now do we believe that? Right? Now it's a bit of a, what you might call a truism to say that God is good. Have you ever heard people say God is good? When do they normally say it? When something has gone right, right? When the sky is blue and when the picnic is tasty, we say, oh, God's good, right? When the kids bring a good report home from school, oh, God's good. When we get a promotion or get enough money to buy a new car, God's good. Uh, One of my favourite preachers is a man called Alec Mattia. Um, he's the editor of the Bible Speaks Today Old Testament commentary series. He died a few years ago, but he's a wonderful man who tells it like it is. He really loves the Lord Jesus and loves the Word, and he tells it like it is. And he, he uh, in one of his sermons, he talks about that, um, you know, that little poem that you buy in garden shops on plaques, uh, the kiss of the sun for pardon, there's something else for, for mirth. You are nearer God's heart in the garden than anywhere else on earth. We all love it, don't we, us gardeners? Except he changes it. He says, you're nearer to God's heart in an earthquake than anywhere else on earth (laughs) when are we nearer or further from God's heart when are we more conscious of our need of the love and the care and the protection and provision of God when we're swanning around in the garden or at a picnic you see the thing is God's goodness doesn't change according to our feelings does it You might have had a ripping day with the family at a picnic and come home and put it on Facebook. God's good. I'm so blessed. But God's goodness is not contingent on my emotions or yours either. Because God's goodness is steadfast and it endures forever. And no matter what your circumstances, one thing that will never change And one thing that you can solidly base your life on is that God is good. Now we need to think about goodness, not according to our definitions of what's good, but according to what God's definition is. Because God is the foundation of all that's good. Now good's one of those words that people will alter. I think bluegrass music is good. In fact, I think it's great. But my brother hates it. Because he doesn't like the way he says that the men sing through their noses. Now I think that's fantastic, right? I think it's good. So we've got different definitions of what we think is good. But when things really boil down to it, the important things that are good find their best definition in God. Now what did God do and what did he say when he began the creative process? At every point along the way, he said... It is good. So right from the beginning, God has been interested in the things that are good. 
And so God is the source, he's the origin of all that's good. Psalm 16 says, I say to the Lord, you are my good. Apart from you, I have no good thing. Apart from Yahweh, the covenant-making, the promise-keeping God, the psalmist says, I have no good thing. We need to change our thinking about good and, and get it to, to where it, it lines up with what God says is goodness. Now, have you ever heard the, the saying, famous last words? Why are we so interested in last words? My uncle was hanging out for my... He was with my grandfather when he died. Now, my grandfather was a man of great Christian faith and my uncle reads the Puritans. You know, he reads those... Those, uh, those great Christian writers of, of previous centuries. And so he was with my, my grandfather and I think he was a bit disappointed that Grandpa just simply slipped away and didn't have anything particularly profound to say as he died. Now, I don't think that's all that significant because we knew that Grandpa was, was a, a sincere believer in the Lord Jesus. But there seems to be something specially significant about the last thing a person says. I read a book about art once and it was talking about Vincent van Gogh. And it was just asking us to look, you know, Vincent van Gogh, the the Dutch painter. Um, And and the book was about how to sort of work out whether a painting is good or not. And so on one page they had a a reproduction of a Vincent van Gogh painting. You go, that looks good, it's a Vincent van Gogh. Then on the next page he said, if I told you this is the last painting he did before he suicided, would it change your thinking about the painting? And of course it would, because we go, oh, that crow flying up into the sky, that's a sign that he knew things were bad. We'd read something into it that maybe wasn't really there. But there's something about last things that grips us. Well, friends, this is the last song that Jesus sang. Because we know that Psalms 113 to 118 were sung by good Jews in the Passover. Now I think that does invest this psalm with special significance. Right from the get-go there's this declaration about Yahweh, the covenant-making, promise-keeping God, that he's good. Why is he good? For his steadfast love endures forever. But in Matthew 26 we read that after the supper's over... And while they're on the way to the garden, when they had sung a hymn, it says in Matthew 26. So it's recorded for us that Jesus and the disciples sang and then they made their way to the Mount of Olives. Do you remember back in the day when people used to wear those little rubber armbands that had WWJD on it? What would Jesus do? I'm going to get a new one out. It'll be in Kurong shops before you can blink. WWJS. What would Jesus sing? Right? He'd sing this. Right? And what would he sing? He'd sing, I give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now, I'm not sure what version you're looking at. Can you remember that? Just remember this bit. For his steadfast love endures forever. Can you get that? Because I want us to have a go at the psalm. Let's see if we can do the next bit together. His steadfast love endures His steadfast love endures forever. I'll say the first bit. I want you to come back at me with his steadfast love endures forever so verse 2 let israel say his steadfast love endures forever that's the whole nation right let the house of aaron say his steadfast love endures forever that's the nation's religious leaders let those who fear the lord say 
His steadfast love endures forever. That's everybody who's not included in the first categories. Now, God-fearers were people who might have been included in the nation of Israel who weren't actually ethnically Jews. But they're people who've come to understand that Yahweh is the one and only God and the wisest way to live is in the fear of him, to understand who he is and who you're not. So all of these three categories are called on to join in this great shout of praise that Yahweh's love endures forever. So let Mafra Community Church say his steadfast love endures forever. Can you count on that? So no matter what the rest of the day holds, no matter what tomorrow brings, you can count on this because Jesus did and in the light of this, he trusted himself to the love of his father as he went to the cross. The steadfast love of Yahweh endures forever. Now that's the gospel. That's good news. Because what else endures forever? You might say trouble. Because it just seems to, well, it just seems to keep finding us, doesn't it? Look, I don't know how many conversations I've had about this wretched virus over the last year, but it's almost like every, everybody begins by... And we've all got our theories where it began or what they should be doing about it and all the rest of it. But some people are really, really concerned about the political dimensions of how we're responding to it. And I know it's dividing churches. And there are some who say, oh, I won't come unless everybody else is wearing a mask. And other people are saying, it's my freedom not to wear a mask. Right? And people are getting head up about it. Things outside of our control. But the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. And that's something that no politician can change. So the original setting for the psalm Scholars have done lots and lots of work trying to figure out what purpose these songs had in the life of ancient Israel. And to be honest, nobody's really sure. They can make their best guess. Many of the Psalms have a heading that's very ancient and that describes the setting that the song came from. Uh, when I sing the songs I write, very often before I sing them, I'll, I'll say, oh, I wrote this song when I was sitting on the veranda. Or, you know, it gives it a context. Right. Sometimes we're told, but sometimes we're not. And this is a psalm that we've told nothing about, uh, but we can conclude a few things from it. It's a celebration of Yahweh's steadfast love, which reminds us, as I've said previously, about Exodus 34, where Yahweh reveals himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So whenever you read about steadfast love, you're meant to think Exodus 34. You're meant to think of the Exodus. You're meant to think of that great event where God rescued people out of slavery in Egypt to bring them into a land that he'd specially prepared for them. All of these things that have come to mind when you read about Yahweh's steadfast love. But someone would have been leading this song. And the theory goes like this. This is probably a psalm that was sung not just at Passover time, but at a time to specially remember a great military triumph by a king. And so there's things in here that suggest that this was written because there was a terrible war, it was a, a, it was a hard work, but God's people came through it. And when you get down to verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness, it's like 
whoever's leading the singing, and it's probably the king, has come to the door of the temple, followed by this long procession that's joining in the celebration, and he's saying, knocking on the door and saying, open up the doors, let me in. I want to lead God's people in worship inside. Can you see that? Does that make sense? So that's probably what's going on here. So let's assume that it's the king who's leading the worship here. He's leading the singing. And it's probable that there were some parts that were sung by the king and there were other parts perhaps sung by a choir of specially trained singers. But there were probably some bits that were sung by the whole bang lot of them. It's a little bit hard sometimes to work it out, but that's probably what's going on here. And so in this early part, it looks like the king is calling out to everybody, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his steadfast love endures forever. And probably someone does say, let Israel say, and they all say his steadfast love endures forever. They answer back. Have you ever been to a concert where the lead singer takes the microphone and puts it out, right? I've never done that because I don't think anybody knows my words. Um, (laughs) Right? I think that's what's happening except without a microphone. Well, Israel has a lot to be thankful for, and so the king leads them in that that singing. So down to verse 5, Out of my distress I called on the Lord. The Lord answered and set me free. Notice how often the Lord is referenced here. He's the real subject of this psalm. 28 times you'll find the Lord in capital letters, which means this is Yahweh, the covenant-making and promise-keeping God that we're talking about. Psalm 118 has more uses of the divine name than any other psalm. Even Psalm 119 only has uh, 24 uses, and that's got 176 verses. 29 verses of Psalm 118, and there's 28 namings of Yahweh. So he is right at the heart of almost every verse here. Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. We're told that in the Gospel of John. When he gets to the Garden of Gethsemane and he sees the crowd with Judas at the front coming to give him the fateful kiss, John records that Jesus knew everything that was going to happen to him. Are you glad that you don't know everything that's going to happen to you? How many horrible things have gone on in your life that if you'd known in advance about them, you would have shirked? I mean life's like that it's full of trial and tragedy jesus knew what was going to happen and he never took a backward step and it's because he loved the scriptures and because he believed them and because as a child he'd learnt them and because every passover he'd sung these words that he had confidence in yahweh the covenant making and promise keeping god whose steadfast love endures forever And so out of his distress, he calls upon God, his father. He says, the Lord's on my side. I won't fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper, sings Jesus. And he knows because he believes these words, I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. You can work this out from the scriptures, but all scripture is inspired by God. Do we agree with that? All scripture. When Paul wrote that, he meant what we call the Old Testament. In 1 Peter, Peter says that all prophecy is given by the Spirit of Christ. There's only one Spirit. 
It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of Christ because Christ is God. So who was the fundamental author of these words? It's the Spirit of Jesus. The Spirit of Jesus inspired a human author to write words that no ordinary human can fulfil. Does that make sense? So Israel sings these words waiting for the person of whom they are true. This is a song that simply couldn't be true of any regular king. But because it's been authored by the Spirit of God, it must be true of someone. And so Israel every year sang this over and over again. And when Jesus came, he knew that the song was about him. And it gave him a blueprint of what he needed to do and the strength in which he needed to do it. So the opposition's ranged against him, but he knows that Yahweh is on his side. He knows he's been deserted by all, and yet he knows that Yahweh is his helper. He says there that it's better to take refuge in the Lord than in the trusting man. There's a verse for our times. Because as I see Christians reacting to the circumstances that we're in, I think some of them are making the foolish choice of thinking that politicians can get us out of this. No politician can fix the real problems of the world. We've got to be good citizens, we've got to cast our vote, but don't expect too much of them. They're flesh and blood and they'll fail like the rest of us. Don't put your trust in princes, says Jesus. Verses 10 to 14, Yahweh helped me when the nations pushed me hard. The nations surrounded him. They surrounded me. See how often that's mentioned there. They surrounded him like bees. My son used to be a gardener. Uh, he, uh, He disturbed a wasp's nest one day and came home with the welts to prove it. Now, to be surrounded by a swarm of bees is an uncomfortable, or wasps, uh, uh, that's what the psalmist says is happening here. Think about Jesus, surrounded by a great crowd of people that came out to arrest him with clubs and, and swords, surrounded by soldiers who spat on him, who honoured him by twisting a crown of thorns and putting it on his head. Thorns grew because sin took root in the garden. Jesus was, they couldn't find a gold crown for him. They crowned him with the fruit of the fall. Best they could do as they mocked him. He was surrounded by the nations. But he took strength from the fact that Yahweh is his strength. Verse 14. Yahweh is my strength and my song. He's become my salvation. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Let's say it again. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus believed that. And he took these words with him through the garden to the cross. Down to verse 15. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Down to verse 17. I shall not die, but I shall live. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Now, what does it mean that the psalmist, and if these words are true of Jesus, how has Yahweh disciplined him? Well, discipline doesn't always mean punishment. Did you know that? If you want to be a good 
piano player, you've got to discipline yourself to practice. If you want to be a good painter, you've got to discipline yourself to paint. If you want to be a good anything, you've got to discipline yourself to do it off over and over and over till the point where you get it right. If you want to be a good sportsman, you've got to turn up to training. Training is another way of saying discipline. These words are true of Jesus because all of these experiences that are recounted here of being opposed, of being surrounded, of being pushed so hard that he feels the sentence of death on him, all of those things have trained him. All of those things have been used by God to make him who he is. But there's also a sense in which we can say he was being punished. Not for his own sins, but for ours. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, a very famous verse, it says, For our sake, that's you and me, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we should become the righteousness of God. So when we read here, the Lord has disciplined me severely, maybe it means he's perfected me, he's trained me, he's shaped me through these dreadful experiences. But perhaps it also means that I've borne the punishment of many. But Jesus knew that God had promised that a a descendant of David would reign forever. God had promised David that in 2 Samuel 7. And so he could sing with real conviction because the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures not temporarily but forever. So verses 19 to 21, the king comes to the gates and it looks as though the king says, open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. That's what he wants to do. And then it's the priestly gatekeepers probably who stand there and they say, but this is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. In other words, have you got what it takes to come through these gates? And the answer is in verse 21. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Jesus had no sin of his own to die for. He went through all of this experience that we've seen in the earlier verses. But he knows that he can rely on God because his steadfast love endures forever. And he knows that he can rely on him to be his salvation, even as he submits himself to the cross. So verses 22 to 28, having entered the presence of God, it's a bit hard to work out exactly who's singing here, whether this is the king or whether this is the congregation singing about the king. But verse 22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, it's marvellous in our eye. This is the day that the Lord has made. It's the day of salvation, the day when God rescues his people. And so they say, let us rejoice and be glad in it. You see, the Passover, when these songs were sung, was a time of rejoicing. It wasn't a time of po-faced sadness and mock humility. The Passover was a time of rejoicing. If you want to just get a little glimpse of that, have a look at Jeremiah 33 sometime. Things were no good in Jeremiah's day, but God says there will come a time and you'll offer these sacrifices with rejoicing again. But you get down to 
verse 27, the Lord is God and he's made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Now imagine Jesus singing this with his happy little crew at Passover time. Rejoicing in God's saving goodness. And as part of the song that they've sung for years at Passover, thinking about how it might have been used in the temple worship in days gone by, bind the festal sacrifice, that's a festival, a festival sacrifice. When Jesus sings it, he knows he's not going to be tied to the altar, he's going to be nailed to a cross. The rest of them are around him rejoicing, but he sings it knowing that that's speaking to him and about him. And so we get to the end of the psalm, and we're going to say it again. Let's say it all, Mafra Community Church. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. Jesus sang it, he meant it, and he believed it, and it sustained him through that incredible act of obedience that's paid the price for your sins and mine. He believed God's word. He took it to heart, and he changed history for our good so Jesus knew that when he calls on Yahweh he'll be answered he knows that he'll never be left alone people will let him down but not God Jesus knows that it's better to take refuge in the Lord than in people so where are we looking for safety for security Jesus knew that though he was surrounded by raging nations, the ones described in Psalm 2, he wouldn't die. Well, he would die. But as the great French hymn writer once wrote, it is not death to die. Because there's two deaths. There's physical death and there's the death of eternal separation from God. And because Jesus paid with his blood for our sins, the second death has no hold on us. So he knew that he'd be rescued, even from the jaws of death. Well, when Peter reflects on Psalm 118 as he's preaching to the people that put Jesus to death, he says Jesus is the cornerstone. It's like all of the tools, all of the bits and pieces are there to make a beautiful building and you deliberately ignore the stone that's going to hold the whole thing together. What a foolish building project that would be, wouldn't it? To have everything laid out that you need and as you begin the building process you say, we'll do without that bit. And it's the bit that you need most. Peter says to the crowd, he names them as the ones who killed Jesus, which is an act of great courage, and he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's quoting Psalm 118. And he goes on and he says there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You won't find the hope of eternal life anywhere other than in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. You won't find security, refuge. You won't find answers to your deepest needs anywhere outside of Jesus. We're going to sing in a moment. There was a green hill far away. 
And we're going to sing these words. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. Why could he unlock the gate of heaven? Because he was righteous. He had no sins of his own to confess, so he carried ours when he went to the cross. We're also going to sing, he died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. Remember how we began? Praising Yahweh because he's good and his steadfast love endures forever. Remember what God said about the world? It is good. Is the world good now? There's remnants of it, but it's not as good as it ought to be and every one of us can think of how it could be better. But there's coming a day when God will again look at creation and say it is good. When Jesus returns and makes everything new, he died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good, that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. There was no other good enough. That's what Peter says. Only the name of Jesus is the name through which we can be saved. So, the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever Jesus counted on it we can count on it too but how do we really know that God is good how do we really know that God's steadfast love will work for us how do we know it well there's a verse in the Bible that makes it very plain it's probably the most famous verse of all John three sixteen. it says for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life that little word so is the key to the verse for God so loved the world now I've heard people say oh God loved the world so much and that's not what it means that little word so is like a fingerboard pointing somewhere you want to know how much God loves you look at the cross God loved the world in this way that's what it means A very good translation of that using Old English would be God loved the world thus. How do you know God loves you? One way. He sent his son to die for you. Is that enough? Do you need more proof? You can bank on that. That'll take you through whatever today and tomorrow holds. That'll take you through your deepest fears. Because you know that if God sent Jesus to do that for you and if God raised him from the dead then he'll raise you too. Because where the head of the body goes the body has to follow. So Jesus knew that the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever and we know because we've seen the evidence of it. And so we're going to say with the saints of all the ages one more time We're going to remind ourselves, the Lord is good. Why? For his steadfast love endures forever. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, these things are amazing. They're truly wonderful. Uh, We don't deserve it, and yet we're counting on it. We thank you that in your mercy you sent the Lord Jesus to be our saviour, to pay the price of our sins. We thank you that you've given us these songs, songs that we can pray now, confident that they're words that Jesus took on his own lips. And we sing them now and we pray them now uh, in his name.
Uh, we thank you that we've come to know you as a God who is good, uh, a God full of steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. Uh, help us this Good Friday to rejoice in all that you've done to secure our release from sin uh, and to, uh, to ensure that through Christ we'll be uh, citizens of your eternal family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.